Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Charlotte. Our pronouns are she, her. This is Demyth Turns the Page. Our special episodes where we explore our past. We discover who we are. And we talk to our amazing guest, Annie Kirby, about their debut novel, The Hollow Sea. Thank you so much for joining us tonight to talk about The Hollow Sea. And we know that you're already an award-winning short story writer, so congratulations on your debut novel. Thank you, and thank you so much for having me. You are absolutely welcome. We were lucky enough to be sent proof copies from Penguin. So at the moment, none of us know quite how good the response is going to be to this. So how do you feel about it? Are you excited? Are you nervous? I think a mixture of both, maybe with a bit of terror thrown in. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it's it's taken me a long time to get to this point, uh, you know, to write a book that was good enough for publication. And then publication is, is quite a slow journey, even once you've signed. So it's been a long time getting here. So I'm really excited that, that, that it's almost here. But um, yeah, I, I guess, you know, the characters and the themes of the story mean so much to me that I think it's natural to be a bit nervous um, and to wonder how people will respond to the story. Um, so far, um, kind of the feedback from early readers has been good. So that's, you know, that tempers my nerves a bit. But yeah, I guess, you know, yeah, excited, terrified, nervous, uh, spectrum, in all those emotions well, it's a very, very wonderful book. So hopefully oh, you're not you. terrified and nervous for too long. Thank you so much. And before we get started on the book, could you tell us a bit about yourself? I'm originally from Bournemouth, um, but now I live in Portsmouth. So I'm, you know, a lifelong seaside girl. I I work for Portsmouth University as a, a researcher. So I work as a cybercrime researcher. So it's completely different from you know, the things that I write about, it couldn't be further. So it's, which is kind of quite nice, really, to have like two such separate spheres. So um, I live with my partner, and I've got two dogs and two cats. Um, and I think you already mentioned, this is my first novel. So I've been writing for years, but I was mainly a short story writer. So this is the first time, first time as a novelist for me. What kind of books do you like to read? I'm, I have very eclectic reading tastes. Um, anything really from the back of a cereal packet to Shakespeare. Um, I just love reading. Um, so I suppose if if you really pushed me to choose just one uh, genre, I would maybe say literary fiction because I'm quite keen on books that experiment with form and structure. And I think in literary fiction, you get a, a, maybe a bit more freedom to do that. Um, but I'm just as happy reading commercial and fantasy and romance. Um, you know, I really, I have a joy. I find joy in reading. Um, and and I'm, not one, I'm not one to read a book too critically. I look for the things that I like in a book. I mean, I love Siri Husvet, the American writer. She's very literary. She plays with structure a lot. But I also, I like lots of things. So things I've read recently, I liked uh, Monique Roffey, The uh, Mermaid of Black Conch. I liked Carmen Marcus, How Saints Die. Lots of seaside books here in my list. Amy Sackville, uh, who wrote a book called Orkney, which I love. Uh, I love Kirsty Logan's work. I love Tova Janssen. 
I think there might be a sea theme for maybe all of those books I've mentioned. <laughs> um, what do I like that's not set by the sea? Um, I really like, I love Plain Song um, by Kent Roof. But, you know, really, you know, I just, I just, I just love books and I very rarely, I very rarely read a book and don't enjoy it. So, yes, very, very broad range of tastes. But if it's set by the sea, that's a definite bonus. To introduce our listeners to the book, if they aren't familiar, when Scotty realises she may never become a mother, she flees to the remote North Atlantic archipelago, I can't pronounce that word, archipelago of St. Here. Storm-lashed and wild, the islands are dangerous. Many have been lost to the ferocious tides known as the Hollow Sea, amidst a bound of a witch named Thordist, who, outcast for her inability to bear children, was driven to a terrible act. The islanders warn newcomers against examining the past, but Scotty can't look away from Thordis's story. Could St. Hia's troubled history hold the key to Scotty's future? I want to talk about the cover of the book very quickly before we get into the actual story, because I'm so obsessed with, with covers. And this is so beautiful. It looks, it's sort of marbled looking, but it also looks like the sea. And it's just... It's, it's quite simple, but it's so beautiful. Yeah, I was so thrilled with the cover. Um, it was designed by Lauren Wakefield, and she just did such an amazing job, and I think she really captured the spirit of the book with it. I mean, I couldn't be happier. I, was, um, I mean, the publisher did ask for my ideas about the cover. Luckily then ignored all of them because what <laughs> Lauren came up with was, is so much more than anything I could have dreamed of. Uh, so I was, I was really, really happy with the cover um, and I had to keep it secret for about six months before my publisher was ready to do the big reveal and I'm not good at secrets. So that was that was a challenge for me because I just wanted to to share. And I've got I've actually got my first copy of the book now and it's even even better in real life than it is on the screen. So I'm very happy. We liked our proof copies too, though. The proof copies were gorgeous, actually. I really loved them. I love the quote on the back of the proof that's from the book but yeah it's they marry together quite nicely I think I think they do yeah I think the uh the marketing team at my publisher Michael Joseph just did an amazing job putting that together and this is the spoiler free section firstly where did the inspiration for the book come from well it's always been drawn to stories about the sea I love you can probably tell that from the list of books that I just gave you that I love to read um, I love storm-lashed islands I love sea mythology I love seals I love whales um, and I also wanted to tell a story about a character who desperately wanted to become a mother but couldn't be a mother um, and in how she came to terms with that um, and I was also interested in the ways that childless women are represented um, in stories. So in myths, in popular culture, but also in, in kind of the media. Um, so I kind of just smushed all of those ideas together. Um, and voila. And that's, that's, that's how, it, how it came. That's how it arrived almost. Um, I guess the main thing is I wanted to talk about childlessness, but I also wanted to tell a compelling story and for that to be what keeps people reading. I thought it was a very interesting way of approaching women that don't have children 
and that's one of the things that I liked about it so much that it was it's kind of different to what I would expect from that kind of story because you've got the sea and the mythology and those kind of angles in there it's such a good story thank you so much I also love sea stuff I scuba dive so I've like dived seals off the coast of the UK so so much about the sea stuff in this book just called to me thank you so much um and I'm quite jealous that you've scuba dived with seals (laughs) There's a place, there's, there's quite a few places in the UK, but there's a place up in that we went to that was quite near Scotland that we and we did it. And they're so, so cute. So we have multiple sort of point of view chapters in the book. And one of them is Scotty, who is our main character. I loved how human she was. And whether you have children, you don't have children, whether you want them or not, you can just feel so much empathy towards her. And I just wanted to give her a big hug. I feel like she needs it. I um, I really, I really wanted her to be a character that you could empathize with. I also think she's quite a flawed character and I wanted that too. I think, you know, um, she's been through a lot of trauma in her life. Um, and she kind of feels things very deeply. Um, you know, she can also be a little bit introspective and feel a bit sorry for herself. Um, But that kind of makes me like her more. Um, Maybe maybe because they're some of the same flaws that I have. She is a fictional character. She's not really based on me. But um, I tried, I definitely tried to draw on my own personal feelings about uh, wanting to have been a mother and and not becoming a mother. Um, and I tried to kind of maybe articulate some of those feelings mainly through the character of Scotty and also a little bit uh, through the character of Thordis as well. Um, so it was really important to me that she was uh, quite a well-rounded character, but but also perhaps a little bit flawed. But I'm really glad that you felt that you wanted to give her a big hug. I did. I really did. And I think, I guess one of the beautiful things about writing, coming from someone who wrote a lot of like <laughs> angsty poetry in my teenage years, is that you can use it to process quite quite personal things. Absolutely. And I have to say that, um, as I said, the book is fiction. It's not my story. But I did get out a lot of the feelings, the personal feelings I had about uh, about wanting to be a mum and not becoming a mum. I kind of processed them in the in the process of writing this book. I got them out and onto the page. So it was really quite helpful for me to be quite cathartic. I think it's a thing as well that people who have been through similar will really be able to resonate with what you've created and feel like they are seen and that they matter. I really hope so. Um, I really hope that they do because I don't think there's very much representation of that particular journey of not being able to have children and and not having a child at the end of the story out there in fiction it's not that common but I also really hope that that people who haven't had that experience can gain some gain something from reading about it as well kindness I think I think so because I think most people will probably have someone in their lives who's who have been through something similar so I think I you know I hope that that maybe people can in 
empathising with Scotty can maybe empathise with uh, friends and family that have been through similar situations. There's a, a bit when she's on the boat going out to to make the journey to go and um, count the seals and she meets some people there and one of them is talking and about her children and stuff and she asks Scotty. And it's one of the first sort of things that she really wants to know about her is about her situation with children. And it's very much I find that people that don't have children have to explain that about why they don't have them, whether they can't have them or whether they don't want to have them. You you owe, as that kind of woman, you owe the world that explanation. Even at, even to other women. Other women want, want you to justify that to them. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's a very, very common question to ask someone if they have children. And I mean, personally, I don't really mind being asked, but but quite often when you say no, it's the response you get to that that's difficult because you'll either get asked another really personal question or, or somebody will say something quite flippant or just walk away from you. That's happened to me before. Um, so that... Um, that particular conversation that, that you referenced when she's on the boat and somebody asks her if she has children, that actually is a almost word for word a conversation that I had with someone. And I know um and I, I know that it's from speaking to other childless people that it's quite a common exchange. Um and it's it's not so much the question that bothers us, but the response when we say no. Um, we don't have children, whether we wanted them or whether we're child free. Um, I think that pressure is put on on everyone to explain, like you said, to explain themselves and to give a reason. Whereas, you know, we don't say, why do you have children? It's just assumed to be the norm. Hmm. So one thing I did after I'd finished reading the book was spent quite a bit of time on Wikipedia looking at different kinds of See, I, I guess sea inhabitants is the right word. Not not sea creatures, but it's sort of sea inhabitants. And one thing I discovered was finfolk. So I sort of wanted to talk to you about them because I, I sort of thought they were quite interesting. And I think you've obviously drawn some inspiration from some of the different types of sea inhabitants. But men are called fin, fin men and women are called fin wives. And it's like the women don't have an identity if they don't have a husband also from wikipedia's description the men look stern and gloomy and the women are beautiful so why why are all these these fin men getting women when they're not they're not hot (laughs) yeah but i think um uh, yeah it's really really interesting i'm really really interested in 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 sea myths and the way in which they represent women um so with the with the fin folk um a, a Finn wife or a Finn woman, which I would prefer, um, would have to marry a human male in order to to keep her beauty. Um, or, you know, they marry um, uh, an, a Finn man. Um, the Finn man will kind of send them up to land to do knitting and sewing to earn silver for them, and and will sort of come up to the to land and give them a bit of a beating if they don't earn enough money. It's very problematical representation of women, but I think also. That's quite common in fairy tales because, or in folklore, because the stories are indicative of how women are seen in in the cultures where the stories come from. And and, and I mean, the Finn folk are particularly 
an Orkney story and they've probably developed out of other stories coming down from Scandinavia. But it's 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 I wouldn't kind of single out one particular culture. I think it happens everywhere. You know, stepmothers are ugly, for example, in stories mm. and childless women are witches and you know it goes on in in that way in that um they're very much um representative of how the kind of broader culture sees women and how women should behave or a way of controlling women and i think there's a, a reference to it in the book as well about how how some of the folklore in the book is not very progressive in terms of it's a representation of women but then you have selkies and apparently Selkies are supposed to be quite attractive men, apparently. That's that's very true. Um, but also then, um, I guess the, the famous story of the Selkies is Copaconan, who, um, whose Selkie skin, so I mean, I mean for people listening, uh, Selkies are seals in the water and they can peel off their seal skins and become human form on land. Um, so in Copaconan's story and other similar stories, a human man steals her seal skin um, to prevent her going back into the water to force her to stay on land as his wife. So I think it's still, whether you're a, a, a Finn wife and really ugly and having to do the spinning for silver or whether you're a beautiful Selkie um, being forced to stay on land and marry a human, it, a lot of these stories are not very kind to women. One thing I do like about the the Finn folk stories or the Finn wife stories is that the the Finn Finn wives or Finn women often have a black cat, and the cat can turn into a fish and take messages back to the underground kingdom kingdom to her relatives. So I really I really like that part of the story. I couldn't really find a place for it in the book, which was a shame. But I love I love little elements and things like that. Similarly, um, the Meros, um, I think the, the 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 males tend to be quite ugly and the women are quite beautiful. Um, and again, the women could be quite vulnerable to being forced to stay on land by by a human. So I was really I was just really interested. Initially, I was interested in how childless women are represented in these kinds of stories, and then I just became more interested broadly in how women are treated and represented in in a lot of folklore even folklore that I love I was going to say about the little mermaid as well when she goes on to land and she suffers pain to be there with him and then that does, that not talking about the Disney version no, but that doesn't really end very well for her but I guess I guess again it's the little mermaid is, is telling us something about what a woman has to put herself through in order to get her man it's really, it's really fascinating, actually. I'm sure there's probably been some really interesting PhD theses written about it. Well, if it hasn't, there's one right there. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Was the Island of Bride and the Hollow Sea and the Cottage, were they, were they based on real places or were they purely figments of your imagination? They are fictional, um, although the... That there's an island, or there's an archipelago called St Kilda, which I think is about 40 miles west of the Outer Hebrides. It's actually one of the Hebrides. It's very beautiful, very remote, and the main so the main island is called Herta. Um, so I, it was a partial inspiration for Bride. And funnily enough, I was watching a TV program recently called Pilgrimage, where they send some celebrities on a 
on a pilgrimage to walk they walked from Northern Ireland to Scotland mm. and they spent a night in a bothy by a beach in a harbour in Northern Ireland and I was jumping up and down on the sofa because I was saying that's it that's my cottage that's the beach um, and while they were filming some seals popped their heads up so um, I think that's somewhere kind of in, in the Port Stewart area of Northern Ireland so I've, I really feel I need to go there one day and see it because it was exactly how I envisaged bride and the cottage to be purely by coincidence and what a coincidence yeah it was really uh, it's really amazing actually like you know I couldn't have I couldn't I you know to to have imagined somewhere and created somewhere and then to kind of just suddenly see on tv somewhere that looks exactly like that was it was pretty amazing actually the inhabitants of Saint Here have folk tales were these based on existing tales already I really wanted to create my own folklore to give me kind of the freedom to to do what I wanted to do in terms of telling the stories that I wanted to tell. Um, but definitely some of them were influenced by various sea myths. So we've already talked about Selkies and Meros and, and Finn folks. So definitely the Hollow Finns were influenced by some of those stories that I've heard. And then others were my own creations so the blackfish's wife the singing shell those ones i just had a lot of fun creating my own fairy tales there were more actually that didn't make it into the final draft so i have you know have like a little book of fairy tales i think um tales from the hollow sea uh, by lucina richmond white is is kind of there <laughs> with with stories written but she did, that, that most of them didn't make it into the final draft I had a lot of fun making up my own folk tales and fairy tales. I loved doing that. I believe that they could have been real. Yeah. Thank you. That's a huge compliment. How did you name your characters? I think this might be the hardest question of all because <laughs> I don't, I, I'm not sure. I think, I think that I'm the kind of writer who thinks about her story and characters for a long time before I ever write anything down. So those characters grew in my mind for a long time. And I think they kind of came ready with names, most of them, because that's just the way I work as a writer. As I as I kind of get to know them in my mind, I just knew what their names were. Um, I think the one exception to that was Kenva, because um, I really wanted that character to have a name that represented the Cornish side of the St. Hian culture, because um, there's a lot of the Scottish side of its culture in the book, and I really wanted uh, to represent a little bit more the, the Cornish side. So um, I did use a Cornish name dictionary for Kenva, but really, really everybody else came fully formed with a name. <laughs> um, I quite often um, see writers or, or or talk to writers who are struggling to name characters but for me you know that's uh, I love I love that side I love that side of it it's never a struggle for me I used to love naming sims when I used to play the sims on the computer that was for me that was like the fun the most fun part of it just naming them all yeah absolutely I would love that too one of the characters Thordis is Icelandic did you pick Iceland because it has ports and fishermen, but also because of the weather and the sea in Iceland being a similar temperament than that around the Hollow Sea? 
It was partly that and also partly because I think there's a lot of kinship between the folklore of Scotland and Iceland. So it just it just kind of felt right to me that the world um, kind of expanded northwards from St. Hia. Um, and there's not that many places to go northwards. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I just I just felt that that Iceland and, and Icelandic culture and folklore had a uh, had kind of kinship to the the culture that I'd created in St. Hia and the stories that they told there too. And did you maybe partly make her Icelandic because people romanticize about how different and foreign it is as a country? This is a line in the book about how her husband her husband had been born there, talking about St. Hia. Yeah. And and she hadn't and she was always treated like a bit of an outsider. I think I think I was almost trying to do the opposite of that and that Iceland for Thordis is the everyday, it's boring, it's the boats coming in and out of the harbour, it's working um, you know, working in the cafe, um, all of those kind of things. It, uh, and that St Hia is the exotic and the and the romanticized place. Um, so I was almost trying to kind of reverse that um so she was um without giving too much away she was kind of due to go off and live quite a cosmopolitan exciting life in iceland and gave it all up for the the romance of st here so almost almost a reverse but very much um definitely always the outsider however long she you know however long she lived in st here she would always be an outsider the story tackles both the routine of IVF and the procedures that Scotty goes through to get to the seal count and and do that. They're two very different things, but both with very specific circumstances and details. What was your research process like? If I start with the seal count, mm-hmm. um, there are actually just lots of seal count reports on the internet and I downloaded them all and read them and they normally included a methodology. So I've read more seal count reports than I ever anticipated that I would. Um, And I also went and volunteered for two weeks at the Cornish Seal Sanctuary. Um, So I suppose that was really more research um, for the seal sanctuary chapter, but it also kind of fed into the seal count because they're obviously... I was working with professionals and some of them had worked on um, seal count type projects. So that was, uh, that was a really amazing experience. Um, when I really had romanticized the idea, I thought I might be bottle feeding baby seals and things, but it was not like that at all. It's really hard graft and really not very romantic at all. Um, but that was an amazing experience. So it was really good to, to do that and to, you know, touch a seal, touch a baby seal, help to feed a seal, cleaning out the pens and things like that so I think that was really helpful in terms of all of the seal related stuff not just the seal count um the IVF I think is a much more difficult question to answer so I researched it in my personal life because at one point I thought that I would be having IVF myself although I ended up not going down that route so I retained quite a lot of knowledge from having done that personal research um, and I also read brochures and treatment plans that were available from fertility clinics. Um, and it was quite tricky because there is a lot of 
a lot of people have posted lots of personal stories about IVF online, but I didn't really want to mine anybody else's story for the purpose of my novel. So in that sense, I kind of pulled back a little bit and I tried to keep the IVF scene quite brief. So it's maybe quite technical um, in the sense that I tried to focus on the research that I could do from third-party sources like fertility clinics rather than, you know, trying to taking someone else's IVF experience and using it on a page. And I think, to be honest, there are lots of amazing IVF memoirs and, and books like that out there that people could get that from if that's what they wanted. Um, what I really wanted to focus on was that Scotty says no more and walks away, and that that to me was the important thing. So, you know, I wanted to I wanted to find that balance between not mining anybody else's story, but also representing how relentlessly difficult um, and and what a difficult experience it can be for many people or most people. I know some people who, who don't don't feel that way about IVF, but many obviously do feel that it was a really, really stressful and difficult experience. So I wanted to it was quite difficult for me to find that balance. Um, and, you know, it, it's for other people to judge whether whether I did or not. But that was, for me, that was much more difficult than, you know, writing about steel counting, for example. And the story also tackles the subject of biological adopted and chosen families. And was this something that you felt was important for you to include? Uh, it really, really was. Um, so quite often... Um, when people talk about being childless, not by choice, quite often people pop up and say, why don't you just adopt? Um, and and it's meant kindly, but it's really not that helpful a suggestion um, because the truth is if you if you wanted children, you couldn't have, have them. You probably have already considered adoption and it's not the right thing for many people for many reasons. And I also think it's a very complex process that should be led by the needs of the child and not by my need to be a parent, that's secondary to the needs of a child. Um, so I also think it's a bit blasé to suggest that adoption is almost a solution to childlessness. I think it's much more complex than that. And adoption is traumatic for a child. Um, and I wanted to I wanted to touch on that in the book by, uh, by having Scotty in particular being an adult adoptee and reflecting on how she felt about that and how that impacted on impacted on her decisions about whether to adopt or not. Um, so, I mean, I, you know, I could do a whole podcast on this issue, but, um, you know, I just, I just wanted to try and represent in a really small way, because I think it's the voices of adoptees that should be centred in this conversation, but I just wanted to represent in a really small way that um, adoption is not a solution to infertility. Um, and it's, you know, not helpful to suggest it in that way. That's, I think, quite an important message for a lot of people that do think they're being helpful. It's kind of in human nature, I think, for people to see a, a problem perceived problem is you want a child you don't have one and I have a solution for you and they people really think that they're being kind because they think they're fixing your 
quote unquote problem. Oh, absolutely. It's almost, almost always meant kindly. Um, and actually, you know, to be honest, I've probably said it to people myself when I was younger and didn't realise that I was going to be childless. Like, oh, you can adopt. It's, you know, it is human nature to, to try and solve people's problems um, for them. But I guess one thing I've learned from going through infertility and involuntary childlessness myself is sometimes the solution, sometimes just need to give someone space to talk about something rather than trying to find a solution for them so um but uh, certainly i know from um talking to other childless not by choice people that it's so so common that that people do suggest adoption so that that's why it was important to me to include it i've actually had that sort of conversation with family members when i've been going i've had some really horrible stuff happen in my life and i've needed to talk about it and they've chimed in with opinions or things and it's like just give me the space to let me let me talk about it and let me feel what I'm feeling I just need to to deal with this in my own way and I just need to talk to you about it yeah absolutely and especially with something about you know with with being a childless person or a childless woman it's people obviously want to fix it because they want to put you in the box that they think it should be. And it's like, actually, there are a number of reasons why someone may or may not want to adopt. And if they get to that point and they decide they want to adopt, that's wonderful. But maybe they haven't processed it yet or maybe they have processed it and they just don't need your opinion. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. This is the point of the episode where if you haven't read the book, but now you really want to, and which you really should, you should stop listening, come back and finish the episode when you finish the book. So we're now going to be asking questions that involve important plot points and or the ending. I think I was about 26 pages in when I worked out that Susan, Charlotte and Scotty were the same person, sort of according to notes that I make about, about the book. I was a lot sooner than that. <laughs> of course you were. But how did we do? I think you did pretty good. Um, I had a fabulous mentor when I was writing the book, uh, Jessica Leake, um, who is an editor at Penguin Michael Joseph. I was on a mentoring scheme. Um, and we, we talked about this because I think we both decided that it was going to be, in the way that I'd structured the book, it was going to be pretty obvious quite early on that, Susan, Charlotte and Scotty are one and did I say that right? Yes, Susan, Charlotte and Scotty are one and the same person. Um so then then I had to think about whether whether that was gonna work. Um because I'm not really I'm not really a writer that's interested in twists, really. I didn't want it to be a twist at the end where you suddenly realised, oh, these are all the same person. I think so, so I think I think after talking it through with Jessica, I think I decided that I was comfortable with people clocking quite early on that that was the case. And it being, it's almost like um, a murder mystery where you know who did it from the beginning and it becomes a why done it and not a who done it. And I was, I was trying to think of it in those terms about uh, hoping that I could tell the story in a compelling enough way that people would be interested in how those three three identities of the same woman became separated um and how they come back together at the end um so i mean other people will judge whether i've done that in a compelling way but that's that's kind of what i was 
that's kind of what I was interested in. I was more interested in the why than the mm. reveal, if that makes sense. I felt like a lot of the book was like a jigsaw puzzle and you get a lot of little pieces. And as you go through the book, some pieces slot together quite quickly, like the identities of the three main characters. And then there are certain bits that you get the payoff for them at the end, like the little sort of sea myth Easter eggs that you tease earlier in the book. And after I got to the end of the book, it was very much like, wow, I, I love how this has all come together. Those last like, be 50 pages uh well thank you so much um i suppose i mean i love i love kind of books that piece stuff together in that way um and i wanted i suppose i wanted to almost it's almost a mystery that that you piece together i wanted that was really important to me that it wasn't just Scotty whining on about childishness <laughs> um, and that there was actually um, this kind of jigsaw puzzle, I think as you, as you put it, that that comes together. And I think also maybe it might be a different experience for everybody who reads it because everybody will put the pieces together maybe in a slightly different order or slightly different stages. Um, and as a writer, that kind of appeals to me, the fact that I couldn't kind of give these pieces over to someone and, and they can put them together and interpret them and move them around and, and do however however they see fit. I quite I'm a bit of a control freak in real life, but in my writing life I'm kind of quite happy to say, here you are, take it and, you know, piece it together however you would like to. I think it's quite a fun idea. Well, I, I clocked it quite early on, but then I think it was around page 27, someone called her Charlotte. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And then from there, it was watching her piece it together that I found quite interesting. Like You're almost there willing her and go, no, 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 just if you just looked at that thing or picked up that book or you looked around that corner, you'd, you'd, you'd have found out. Yeah, it's really interesting because... Um, I've, I've obviously read the book a lot, about a hundred times, <laughs> or, or maybe a bit less. But I was thinking, do I want to shake her and say, "Why are you not getting this yet?" Um, but obviously, you know, for technical reasons, she can't really get it till the end. <laughs> you, you know, as a as a writer, you need to. Um, I'm sure there's some technical term for it, but you need to kind of hold off something for a satisfying ending. Um, and I, you know, it will be really interesting when when the book comes out to see how people respond to that way of doing things and the way in which the order of Susan's story in particular is told as well. But yeah, I do, I do think people will will put it together in in different ways, and I think that's okay. We f- we find out that Mary came from the sea. And is there something that you envision her to be specifically? I know you said you like to sort of hand it over to the reader, but she seems like a kind of amalgamation of pieces of the three women that we have touched on earlier. So, I mean, she, you definitely, you could definitely read the book um, as being completely realistic and all of the mythology is in Scotty's mind or in, in her dreams or in Thordis' dreams. You could definitely read it that way if you wanted to. And I wanted that option to be available um, so I guess in that interpretation of the book, 
Marin is just a woman from somewhere or other and she goes back to where she came from because she when she leaves her husband um but the way I like to look at it is you know is she is a hollow fin woman she's come from her enchanted kingdom under the sea and yes definitely inspired by fin women and meros and selkies what's really interesting is that neither of us considered that option <laughs> that it was all in her mind we neither of us thought that that could be what it was no but then you like myth because this this is you know, you, you like myth so i think that would um and i Matt, i agree with you i agree with you that you know the the, the hollow fins are real but i think there might be some people who would prefer to take her like a more well, i don't know what the word i'm looking for but a, a more um pragmatic a more realistic more pragmatic approach, yeah. Pragmatic is a really good word. I think some people could take a more pragmatic approach and maybe, or, or to not be certain whether it, it, the magic is really there or not. I don't know. Um, so I wanted, you know, I wanted almost um, again to to give that over to the reader to decide. We've seen in other mythologies as well that there's something in men stealing from a woman stealing something that she needs in order to keep her almost I guess bound to him is that something that inspired you yeah absolutely um so in this case um actually it's kind of mirrored throughout the book but in, in particular in the case of of Marion it's her magical skirt and that particularly comes from Merrows. so the Merrow people the Merrow folk uh, wear a red feathered cap and that's what enables them to move between uh, the sea realm and the land realm. So if you steal a Merrow's cap, they've got a problem. Uh, or it might, I've actually seen other versions of it where it's a belt or some other item of clothing. So I just, I just thought it would be fun to use a skirt. And to be honest, there might be a version of the Merrow myth out there where it's a skirt. I, I'm not claiming originality <laughs> That it might it might be out there somewhere already, but I just thought that would be a really fun idea and a fun way to do it. Um, but also, I wanted to mirror that a little bit, perhaps with um, Scotty's experience with her first husband, David. So there was no item particularly, but he, you know, it's that it's that idea of controlling women that I wanted to represent it in both the real world and and the mythical world in the book. It's a very much kind of I want that one attitude of the man. Like I want that one. She's going to be. She's going to be mine. Yeah, absolutely. I will be honest. I prefer the skirt to the cap. I think visually it creates a much nicer image of a skirt turning into a tail. And I think that's why I liked it. I just, I just, it, I, I'm quite a visual writer. I think so. I really, I just really liked the way that that looked in my mind so much of mythology is quite quite visual as well like we know there's a story in Chinese mythology where someone steals a woman's sort of robes to to make her stay with him and it's again it's that sort of visual visual thing yeah Thordis considered Merin her enemy for stealing her husband so why did Thordis help her in the end? Why did she help her find the skirt? Because I don't know if I would have. No. 
I think um, she knew the harm that was being done to Marion and her children, and it's harm that she had herself experienced. I think um, it was really important to me because, again, childless and child-free women are often stereotyped as being very selfish, and it was really important to me. And I think Thordis by character was was quite, you know, not an especially generous person, but it was really important to me that she did something spectacularly unselfish in this book. And, you know, what she does is she sacrifices everything to help her ex-husband's new wife and children. Um, and I don't think you can get more unselfish than that. So that was really that was really what I was trying to get at there. Um, uh, and I think, you know, I don't think I would probably do it either. But, but then maybe maybe I would. Maybe if... Maybe if I had an ex-partner who was beating his new partner and if, he, and if she asked me for, for help, actually, maybe, you yeah, know, actually, when you put it like that, I probably would help, but grudgingly, <laughs> maybe. But yeah, I just I just think, you know, she could see the harm that was being done to Marion. She could see the harm that would be done to the children witnessing that violent relationship. But yeah, so my main motivation there was to, to have a selfish, childless woman doing something really selfless. What's so sad is that she never gets credit. Not saying that she sh- she's doing it to get credit from other people, but what happens to her after Mary disappears is she's accused of kind of murdering them all, and it's horrible how she's treated. Yeah, it does. I mean, it does spectacularly backfire <laughs> on her. And again, you know, I just I just think people maybe or. There's just kind of like a general suspicion towards childless people, childless people, or that, that they might want to steal somebody's child or something like that, which I see again quite often in popular culture about the crazed child stealing childless woman. You know, I'm thinking, I don't know, I'm thinking Rebecca mm. de Mornay and Hand that Rocks the Cradle. You know, like the crazed nanny who oh, tries yes. to steal the. The, the, the child um that's not an uncommon trope i see that quite a lot um and i can see you know that it makes for good storytelling but i also find it quite frustrating that it's so it's such disproportionately there in terms of how often that kind of thing really happens yeah it yeah i i you know i think thordis is the is the character who has the worst of it and it is yeah it does it makes me sad <laughs> i know i did it to her i'm the writer but I, you know, I think, I think in a way she's my favourite character because I think she does something amazing, and it, you know, it ruins her life. But I like to think, I like to think she would have done it anyway. I think Rebecca De Mornay would make a good Thordis, like not Actually, now. Yeah. She's probably a bit too <laughs> too old now, but from from then, I think she would make a good Thordis. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she would be. She would have been great. Why is Thordis so hung up on the? the comb because she wants it from Mary she's like well I'll help you but I want the comb I suppose because it was a wedding present to her um and then ended up belonging to the second wife I think she just wanted it back as a point of principle you know it was hers it was gifted to her um and then re-gifted to the second wife you know, I mean, I think, I think, you know, she already knew that her her husband was not, you know, the nicest of people. But um, that that him giving that gift to his 
his next wife is was you know just rubbing salt in the wound really so I think that's why she wanted it back yeah I took it as he handed it it was almost discarding Thordis to the point where well it doesn't matter I've just got a new wife and I'm just going to give them the same thing I gave yeah my first wife yeah and I, I absolutely that discarding is such a good way of putting it that's exactly I think exactly what he did and exactly how she would have felt about it on page 45 we hear the story of the girl making a friend and I did sort of think it was a bit weird that he would appear to visit her and then disappear because at that time I didn't clock for ages I think you had to spell it out that he was a magical sort of sea person but yeah so I put that together when you spelled it out but was the inspiration for the whirlpool cave and the island of radiant lights god i'm probably gonna butcher this finn finn folkaheim yes yeah it yes it was um and in early drafts of the book we spent a little bit more time there and it's really nice um in in kind of the island of radiant light is lovely um but it, it slowed the book down a bit too much so i had to kind of strip that back a bit but yeah it was absolutely um and i'm also going to butcher it it was absolutely inspired by finn folkaheim you can see i did my wikipedia research <laughs> and, and I, I actually i really love the idea of there being undersea kingdoms i just um i don't know i just i think that's a really I think it's quite common in different sort of cultures and folklore as well that there's kind of an undersea world that almost mirrors the above world. I, I really I really like that idea. I think it's quite quite attractive. So many cultures that have access to kind of coastlines have some type of sea inhabitant in their mythology, whether it's a god, whether it's yeah. like mer- mermaids or meros. There's there's always something. Yeah, there, yeah, there is definitely. It's just, um, I guess, the sea is so mysterious, and we we always know that there's something beneath the surface that's hidden from us. So it's fascinating in that way. We both noticed a parallel between Scotty and David and her parents. With Scotty and David, it feels very Finn folk, where she had to give him all her money from what she was creating, and he was taking things from her. Was that your intention? I think that's really interesting. I think I I was definitely intending for there to be some mirroring between Scotty and David and Thordis and Cadal and then Scotty and Kemba. Um, and I like a bit of mirroring. I like to, to kind of have that through the book. But, I mean, now that you've mentioned it, I think you're right. Um, and uh, it's that element of control that is mirrored throughout the book in different relationships and you know pretty common in the real world as well I think sadly um and not that uncommon for the same person to move from one controlling relationship to another so yeah I yeah I I I really like that interpretation I think I like that a lot and Scotty clearly suffers from PTSD. She mentions therapy and she's developed breathing techniques as a coping mechanism, but she's not always sure what her trauma is. But even before she remembers her childhood, 
and she has a lot of trauma. She's got loads of trauma. She was adopted at a later age. Um, she, her adopted father died to her abusive husband. Like she's actually, even before she remembers that she was with Thordis, she's got a lot to to be suffering from. How did you research PTSD and, and how it manifests? I think... I think what she ha- actually has is a, a condition that is similar to PTSD, but it manifests in this kind of howling and, and shaking condition. And that is a condition that I actually suffer from, although it manifests a little bit differently. So it, I fictionalised it. So, I, yeah, I didn't really have to research it because I've lived through something similar. And, and I think I think what I wanted to portray is that Scotty really minimised her trauma. She couldn't see that she'd been traumatised. She'd think, she said, oh, you know, nothing's ever, ha- nothing bad has ever happened to me or something like that to, to her psychiatrist. When in fact, you know, she's been through the trauma of adoption. She's been through the trauma of an abusive marriage and a breakup. She's been through the trauma of IVF. And it's actually not that uncommon for women who've been through IVF to develop PTSD-like symptoms as well. So I just think she's blind to it. She can't she can't see it and that's part of her that's part of the journey that I wanted her to go through was to recognize that actually she'd been through many traumatic experiences and deserved to heal from them which I think hopefully by the end of the book she's starting to do since you love mirroring I think we noticed a few or what we thought were a few moments of mirroring and I thought that there was some mirroring between so on page 125 we have the scene with the girl mm-hmm. she's five and she finds the seal pup on the beach and she really really wants to try and nurse the seal pup better she's really concerned about it earlier on page the scene starts on page 92 there's the beaching of the whales and I feel like Scotty, this might have been something in Scotty that kind of almost remembered or had that that real need to protect. I also wondered as well if there was an instinct that drew Scotty to the well that Ellie thought was the matriarch. Because it seems interesting that that was the one she felt so protective over. Yeah, I think you're right on both counts, actually. Spot on on both counts that no, Scotty can't remember her early life, but maybe she can really in a in a very abstract kind of way. So um, she's had this experience of, as a young girl of rescuing, um, unsuccessfully rescuing the stranded seal cub, um, and then as, as an adult being involved in the in the whale stranding. And yeah, I do think um, I think it's not a coincidence that she ended up with that particular whale and was very keen to stay with that whale when Ellie wanted her to go and look after one of the more junior, less important whales um, over the course of the night when they're trying to keep them all alive. Um, So, yeah, I think, yeah, I think you're absolutely on the money with that. On page 276, Kemba tells Scotty the story of the Blackfish's wife that you said that you created for, for the book. So I was wondering if that's if Thordis might have heard this story because when we think of this kind of society of people, I can imagine there are these folk tales that are just passed around and everyone just knows them and it's just 
so ingrained in their history and culture. So I wondered if that's why she wanted to keep Scotty away from the water because she thought that yeah. Scotty might want to return. Yeah, I do think so. I think um, I think definitely that's a story that will have been told many times by different people. And I think Kemba actually said that, that he's just working on his own version of that story to tell at a festival. Um, so there will have been other versions that he will have heard and that everybody on the islands will have heard. So, um, so yes, um, I absolutely think that Thordis will have heard that story probably from her husband. And there's some mention in there of her hearing about the Holofins and, and stories from him in the early days of their marriage. So I wanted to kind of layer that up a little bit, um, little hints that why she might not want Susan to go into the water. Um, but without you know being too obvious about it so yeah that was that's what I wanted to do there I have a theory so my theory was Thordis thought that if Susan was in the water for long enough she'd be taken by her mother or her mother's family yeah um yeah I think that's generally what she was worried about and why and again why she stopped using Susan's name in almost that they might hear it and be compelled to come and find Mm -hmm. her um, so she was just completely trying to cut her off from Susan off from that possibility of her, her mother or her mother's family coming to get her. But yeah, I definitely think the longer the longer she was in the water, the more at risk she was. And now we're in the spoilers section. Who killed K- Caddle? Cadle? Caddle, I think. I think Thordis killed him when she was defending Marion and the children. That's what I thought, but I just wanted to to check. <laughs> yeah, and then I think Sam disposes of the body. So he he puts. I think there's a brief mention of, of Sam scuttling the boat. So I think, you know, she gets in touch with Sam, and he comes and helps her by uh, putting um, Cadell's body on his boat and scuttling it. I wondered if he was still alive out there somewhere because I don't think he's human. I'm convinced that he, there's something about him that's not human because I found so many bits in the book that made me think that he wasn't it's really really interesting that you would say that because I before I wrote this book I wrote another book that was not dissimilar it it had a different story but it had similar folklore and similar islands and um, a similar character to Caddle who was in fact in that book not human so I think maybe you're right although I haven't fully explored it myself there might be more. There might be more Saint Hia stories to come, and I think maybe there's a lot of people in Saint Hia who might have magical, mysterious, mythological ancestry. Well, to break down my my theory, one thing that we both felt really strongly about was that Kenva physically tried to stop Scotty leaving with Jasminda, and after I finished the book, I was sort of thinking about about that and it really reminded me of when when Cadel first showed his nasty side to Thordis in the church and it's such a slight moment but it's the grabbing of the wrist mm. and it just made me think and also you said something like he bubbled when he talked I was like hmm so there's that he made her leave her his home her home and go with him to an island that he describes as his island she had a dream about being pregnant and she has a seal baby in the dream. Yeah, that's right. She gives birth to a baby that has flippers. 
Mm. Yeah, a bundle of fur with flippers. And she says that's not her daughter. And he's just acting completely normal. There's a painting of her in the hollow sea that he does. And she describes that she liked the painting. And on page 335, you can see that I've, I've taken this theory very seriously. He says to her, I'll keep you safe. You belong to me now. And the next line is, surely she thinks we belong to one another. And it's just that sort of possessive attitude. I love all of that. And I love that you've made notes and, um, and come to that conclusion. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, and it's, it's really fascinating to me to see that um, come through from a character that I created for a different book who's almost morphed across to this book. And in, in I guess, in the other book, which is in a bottom drawer somewhere, it wasn't a very good book, but in the other book, um, I was much more explicit about him having some kind of magical ancestry. So it's really fascinating to me that it's still there in the background, hovering around. And I think I think you're right. I'm so sure I remember someone saying as well that there was no body, like he drowned in the water. So I, I'm sure there's quite conflicting ideas of what happened to him. And it's very sort of rumour. So someone will say something and then it will evolve. You know, he's maybe gone missing, drowned at sea, and then the next thing he's been murdered by Thordis and it's this really gruesome thing and it's horrible and this happened and this happened. And I just think, yeah, there'd be so much in terms of like yeah, Chinese uh, whispers totally, in a small yeah. society like that. So I liked the ambiguity though. That's not to be honest. That's what I love about putting in a bit of ambiguity, and I think it's I think it comes almost from being a short story writer where you have to do that because you don't have space to explain stuff. And I just I love leaving these gaps for for readers to fill in. Absolutely love it. I love that you've done that. And we message about stuff as well in our theories because I, I was really surprised that Kemba was the boy that she'd met when she was How? living with this. You had to spell that out for me. Yeah, it was in the state. You worked it out so quickly, but I didn't. Yeah, I worked it out really quickly because, I don't know, there was the boy and then she kept talking about the piano player. And I was like, well, clearly the boy and the piano player are the same person. And yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think, I mean, I, 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 I don't know, to be honest, because I, they are the same person. So I, um, I thought the sand sculptures were maybe a clue because he makes the sand sculptures in both timelines. And he also, he's also got a scar on his forehead from when he falls over in the cave, with the Whirlpool cave, he falls over and gashes his head open. And Kemba has got a scar on his forehead, which he keeps touching incessantly, to be honest. <laughs> Um, but again, that's that's what I that's what I wanted. I wanted people to put things together at, at different paces, and it for, for to be for it to be different for every, different experience for everybody. I think sometimes that's why we like doing this together when we see slightly different things and we just we we talk about them and sort of like dissect them before the point that we even send questions to you. So we definitely pick up on different things as well. Not always, but a lot of the time. It's amazing. It must be brilliant to have like a, a reading partner that you can do that with. It, it's frustrating when you read the book first because Lauren hates spoilers. Like I, yeah, I don't I mind not. them. I'm, I'm still going to read the book regardless of whether you tell me the spoiler. But Lauren hates them, and I and I always forget this. So I always say something and go, "Oh, hang on, I shouldn't have said that." <laughs> well, now she started messaging me things like, "Right, I've got a theory." 
where are you in the book? Can I talk about the theory yet? Because I don't like spoilers because I like to kind of have my own thought processes I'm going through and be surprised. I don't want to know what's going to happen because I want to, it's the, for me, it's the process of kind of working things out. But then I I think also because I tend to figure things out quite quickly and I think maybe it's because I've read so many books that I, I spot patterns or I don't know. I don't know why I figure out a lot of it quickly. But it's like, well, spoilers don't bother me because I've already figured it out. I love the journey. I don't mind spoilers so much because I have have a goldfish memory, so I just forget them anyway and then get get lost in the book. Well, that's the best way. I like to go on a journey with the book and see where the book takes me. And then I, I will work things out, you know, obviously at my own pace. And we do work different different things out. Kemba said that he was waiting for her to come to him because she seemed fragile and he didn't want to spell out for her who she was. Is that why he made this? You said about the head touching, touching the, yeah. the gash in his head. Is that why he made the sand sculptures as well to try and prompt something? Yeah, I think so because um, that initial scene with the sand sculpture and telling uh, the initial scene with the scan, sand sculpture and then the later scene at the festival and he specifically tells her, um, or I think tells the, the other tourists that the sand sculptures are ways for the holofins to travel between the land and the sea realms. I think he was trying to, you know, trying to prompt her without telling her outright. He was trying to get her to remember, but um, obviously he needed to work a bit harder. But yeah, he absolutely, absolutely was trying to drop hints all over the place. But then there's a point, so they're on the boat and she has, the sea is not good and she has a little, one of her moments where she needs to sort of calm herself down and he gets really angry with her about this and then they don't have any contact and then she goes to listen to Sam telling a story because the librarian has said that she should go and then she goes to Sam's house and Ken was there and he's just, a, a bit arsy with her and I couldn't quite work out why so maybe be a bit nicer and help her a bit more and I, I never got his attitude yeah I think he's um I think he is just just that kind of arsy person to be honest and I think I feel like he was angry with her but in an irrational kind of way because she's done nothing to warrant it but maybe angry that she's not remembering who he is angry you know it's kind of irrational because he wants her to to remember and to to come to him and say i remember who i am and remember who you are but he's also pissed off that she's poking around and asking questions and it's it's contradictory but i think he's quite a contradictory character they met once so maybe she won't remember who he is well she i think they met more than once as children okay we get only get a couple of scenes. They, I read that. I read it. They yeah, did. but we only we we get we only get a couple of scenes together with them as children. But I think they probably did meet more than those times. Um, and maybe I think I mean I think it's also fair to say that he's not one hundred percent sure that she is Susan. So he's he's just kind of waiting around in the background, waiting for something to happen, and not really knowing what he wants. I didn't like him. I didn't take to him at all. He's a, I, th- I think he's a really interesting character because I find him like, he's like, 
it's weird to talk about characters that I've created like this, but I find him like a really compelling and interesting and fascinating character. And sometimes he's nice and sometimes he's not very nice. I think he's, I think maybe he's one of the most complicated people in the book in a way. Yeah, I have, I have very mixed feelings about him. I enjoyed him as a character. Like scenes with him in, they were good. And I thought he brought a lot to the book, but as like a, as a person, I, I didn't like him. I was rooting for Jazz the whole time. I wanted Jazz to come yeah, back. Me too. And <laughs> um, why do you think Scotty would choose to stay with Jazz? I think fertility, infertility broke them. I mean, they really loved each other, but infertility just broke their relationship. So I think for me, it was natural that as they started to heal from the infertility, that they would find each other again. And to be honest, also, I wanted the book to have a hopeful ending without them having a baby, but had to have a hopeful ending with them and to have them together and, and looking forward to a new life together. I thought that was it was quite important. Um, and, you know, I guess, you know, I think I mean, I don't think Jasmine is like a perfect person. I mean, he put pressure on, on Scotty to carry on with fertility treatment when she wanted to stop. But I do think that he's generally genuinely a really lovely person and that um that that scotty and jasminder really were meant to be together and that leads me to my point is i really liked this story about a couple who can't conceive that you didn't tie it up by ending it with them having a baby and not that it wouldn't have been lovely and obviously there are a lot of people out there who struggle and struggle and and do end up with a wonderful child whether it's through natural means, IVF or adoption. But I really liked as someone who's in their almost mid thirties, who hasn't decided whether or not they want children, that it was, it's almost another option. Like actually they've ended up together working through together. And like you said, it's hopeful, it's a future and it might, and it might not have a child. And I, I actually really liked that. I found it really refreshing. It was, um, it was really important to me that there was no miracle baby in the book. So um, something that something when I was trying to become a mum, I really liked books that had miracle babies in them because I found that quite hopeful. And then when I got to the point where I knew I wasn't going to be a mum, I started to look for stories where that didn't happen and and found them quite difficult to find. It's much more common Mm. for there to be a miracle baby. And, um, that happens. Um, it happens in in fiction and television. It happens in folk stories. It happens in the news media. Um, so quite often, there's a story where there's a miracle baby. So either by science, my miracle IVF baby, or supernatural. Um, so there's the the Japanese myth of I'm probably mispronounced this Momotaro, who's a peach boy. So the childless woman is washing. Uh, clothes by the river and a giant peach floats down the river and she opens it up and inside is a baby um and there's also the snow child um so i mean one of my favorite novels is the snow child by yoan ivy and that's based on a russian folktale of snogorochka the snow maiden so the childless couple make a girl of snow and it comes to life so um it's quite common for that for a miracle baby to appear somehow and that kind of resolves the story and gives it a lovely happy ending and and so on. Um, but I really wanted to read stories that reflected that side of my experience where the, the, there was not going to be a child to come along and give me a happy ending. Um, and I have a bit of a theory that folklore and popular culture and 
in the media, they kind of divide childless women into two halves. And there's that deserving half who get a miracle baby. So their childlessness is resolved by the appearance of a baby. And then there's the undeserving ones who become witches, hags, child stealers, cold and calculating career women, that kind of thing. Um, There doesn't seem to be a middle ground where you don't have a child, but you're actually quite nice. Um, So I really wanted, I really wanted to explore that um, kind of trope head on. Um, And that's why I was quite keen to have Thordis as treated the way that she was and presumed to be a witch just because she didn't have any children. Um, But it's kind of, it comes from the same place that made me not want to give, to to have a, a miracle child for Scotty at the end of the book. I'm sure I remember a story where they were filming The Devil Wears Prada and Meryl Streep's character through most of it is this kind of hard-nosed career woman. She she does have, have children in it, so that it's not exactly the same, but there's a scene in it where they show some real humanity in her where she gets quite upset with... with um, she's quite upset and she's talking to Anne Hathaway's character and they sort of bond a bit and she has this emotional moment. And I, I read that that was quite important for Meryl Streep to have that in there because she wanted this character to have humanity. She didn't want this character to be just like a cold, hard career woman. She didn't want her portrayed like that and she wanted to show her as a bit more of a sort of nuanced character. That's really that's really fascinating because I think we all use tropes in writing. I know I've used tropes. You, you kind of have to. That's how kind of we function. But I just think um, some tropes can just become so overused that they become kind of quite negative and harmful when you can never see a positive representation of yourself as a childless person or what whatever situation situation it is. Um, so yeah, I think nuance is a is exactly what I was aiming for. We had another slight theory that we were discussing literally before you came online and we said we were going to ask you about it. So Scotty wants to leave to go with Jazz because she's concerned about about Helen and what's happening. And Kenva tries to physically stop her, which we thought would probably have reminded her of what happened with David. If, if Kenva hadn't done that, would she have maybe gone back to him? I think it's a strong possibility that she would. She did the right thing. Yeah. But yeah, I definitely think Kenva and David, not exactly cut from the same cloth, they're, they're different, but certainly some similarities of their negative qualities. And I think she had a bit of a light bulb moment she sort of breaks the cycle as well. The cycle that happened with her dad and Thordis, her dad and Mary, so her birth mom, with her and David. And then it's come down to the situation where it could maybe be her and Kenva, but she sees it as like a red flag and it's like, no, you know what? You're not for me. Yeah, and I think and that's another reason, I think, going back to the question about why I wanted her to end up back with Jasminda, because she'd actually already broken the cycle by marrying Jasminda, but then infertility happened and messed that up for her, so she got a second chance to break the cycle. Where did Thordis actually end up? Because we know that Scotty was adopted at an older age, and we know that Thordis looked after her, 
But what happened to Thordis afterwards? Well, in chapter one of the book, Thordis and Susan are in the rickety old fishing boat fleeing, fleeing um, and there's yeah. a big storm. So, I mean, the last we see of Thordis is she's sinking in under the water and the water's inside her and she's surrounded by colour and silence. So I suppose I wanted the reader to take from that whatever they will. We find out later that Susan survived because she's washed up. But we also know that Thordis pushed Susan up. So I think, again, I'd like people to interpret it however they would wish, but my personal interpretation is that that's uh, Thordis's second big selfless act, which is that she saves Susan and sacrifices herself. But, you know, I'm open to other people interpreting that scene differently because it is quite open. It's so sad that she thought this becomes Thora. They anglicised her name and she became the Bride Witch. So she's used as a story to scare children into behaving, whereas she she shouldn't have been. She was such a selfless person in the end with what she did helping Mary. And if she sacrificed herself to save Susan in the water, she she should never have been that story. You're making me feel guilty <laughs> that I've been very bad. No, 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 because it's something that, no, it's just look at looking at folklore yeah. and stuff. You know, I, 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 I do think Thordis is, you know, the most tragic character in terms of her life and what happens to her. Um, and I know I created that story, but I, I still feel angry about what happens to Thordis. Justice for Thordis. Yeah, and it's so unfair. It's so unfair because of the way that she's, particularly in the, the way that she's seen as being a witch or a murderess or, you know, nobody's got, nobody's really got anything good to say about her except for Sam um, and maybe Tony. It's got a bit of a soft spot for her, but, um, you know, if, even those two people that, that could maybe see the real her weren't really able to help her in the end. I've just thought of something else, actually, to do with Thordis. So after she's she's now single, her relationship has broken down, there's a situation where she is teaching as a piano teacher. And I can't remember his name, but a friend of Cadel's comes in and tries to offer, make moves on her. Yeah, and tries to make moves on her. And when she's not receptive... She, she's saved then by yeah by the priest coming around. He makes comments about her being barren. It's like he has to. It's such a horrible little jibe, but it, the way it's used to not only as a way to kind of judge women, kind of put women in these unpleasant boxes, but it, he's actually being used as an insult to a woman to like make her feel less of a woman because she's yeah, and I mean because she hasn't had a child. It's nasty, and also so nasty. I think it happens more than you would like to think people make comments like that it's um yeah i have i have a very low opinion of those people but i you know i think uh, i sadly people do say things like that which is depressing i just poor thought is <laughs> i'm glad that you put it in there though because again it's something that will give people something to think about and talk about because we're reading this and identifying that oh it's so, so horrible because he's done that and it might make people either rethink their own behavior or maybe challenge the behavior of people that are like that 
I hope so. Hopefully. I liked on page 152 that Thordis takes Susan's natural toddler disposition to push boundaries as an attack on her mothering skills. I thought it was a very complex scene that it's, you know, it described a normal way for new mothers to feel, but also it was a natural part of pressing buttons and Susan seeing what she could get away with. But did you include this to emphasize that Thora Thordis felt Susan knew she wasn't her mother or to highlight the complex feelings around adoption? I think that as a someone who really wanted to be a mother but didn't become a mother, I think I have a tendency, and I'm sure this is probably true of other people in my situation, I have a tendency to romanticise motherhood. So I grieve for the children that I never had. But to be honest, those imaginary children I miss, they were pretty perfect. They didn't do any of those things that toddler Susan does in that scene or any other bad things. So when I was in the... I suppose the very early stages of coming to terms with childlessness and a sort of in grieving, uh, I found it quite difficult to listen to mothers complaining about motherhood and how hard it was because I was like, you've won the lottery. <laughs> Stop complaining. You've won a million pounds and now you're complaining about it. It's, um, and that's obviously motherhood is incredibly hard. And I don't know anyone who's a mother who, do, who hasn't found it a really in, incredibly challenging you know, life affirming and, and transformational, but also a very challenging thing. So I suppose as I've kind of come to terms and healed and come to terms with being childless, I've become part of that has been me becoming more accepting that I probably would also have found motherhood really challenging and my children wouldn't have been perfect. And I suppose what I was trying to do here is quite a personal thing, maybe, was to try and acknowledge that motherhood isn't easy. So no matter how much I might personally have longed for it, I think it's it's maybe quite a personal thing for me to put in a book that it's okay, it's okay for mothers to complain about motherhood to me now because I'm in a better place and I wanted to acknowledge that motherhood can be really hard. It's really interesting that you mentioned adoption here because um, I really wanted to show the complex feelings around adoption in Scotty and Helen's relationship you know obviously quite a difficult mm. relationship but and then for Thordis and Susan I think it was not so much adoption but circumstances were forced upon them she didn't want Susan she had no choice but to care for her so it's a very different situation it's not something she sought out so um, I like the idea and wanted to explore the fact that she was very begrudgingly looking after this child who was quite also quite a difficult child, but came to love her anyway. Um, so that I guess that maternal side of her overcame everything else in the end. So maybe I suppose I come full circle back to romanticizing motherhood, but I guess particularly with that scene, what I was trying to do was acknowledge that motherhood is difficult as well. And she must've grown to love Susan and kind of, in, I, I'm sure she must have enjoyed having her around after a while. I think so. I think so. Otherwise, she wouldn't have gone to all the trouble she did to keep her safe. She could have just thrown her in the water and been like, take her. Take her, take, take her child exactly, back. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking to us today. And what can you tell us about your next book? The little bit you've teased on your website looks amazing. Do you have any other... 
that and any other projects lined up at the moment? So um, my next book is a historical body swapping time slip ghost story. Um, It's set in the late 16th century Italy and early 17th century London. Um, And it's based on the life of a woman called Vittoria Acoramboni. So a real person, a noble woman who was assassinated in 1585. Um, By chance, another famously childless woman. Um, She's been written a lot about a lot, mostly by men, and sometimes, not always, but sometimes a little bit one-dimensionally. So I was quite interested in taking her story and doing something a bit different with it. Yeah, so I made it made it into a ghost story and time slippy and body swapping. So I'm really excited about it. Um, still working on it. It's not finished yet, um, and that's really taking that's taking all my headspace at the moment because I'm quite out of my comfort zone because um, I'm quite new to writing historical fiction. So yeah, that's that's it. That's that's the thing at the moment. Just that. It sounds really cool. I'm so excited to read Thank it. You. I love the little teaser that you've put on your website, like the the few lines. As soon as I saw that, I was Thank like, this is so a much. book that, that I'm going to love. So where can people go to support you and find out what's happening in the future? Um, well, I'm on Twitter and Instagram as Dr. Kerbs. And then on Facebook as Annie Kirby Author. And I have a website, anniekirby.com. I suppose, um, I suppose, I suppose my hope is that people will buy the book um, and engage with it and kind of engage with the themes because I think maybe there's not that many books out there that deal with these themes in the way that I've dealt with them. Um, maybe there are and I just haven't come across them yet. But um, I really hope that people will um, read the book and respond to it in a positive way. Um, and respond to the themes of childlessness, but also all the myths and the seals and the wells and the storm. So I guess in terms of what's happening in the future is hopefully finishing the next book or the current book. Um, I don't have a date on that. I'm still, I'm still working on it. So I suppose I'm just looking forward to publication day. And then I guess that's a huge milestone. And then uh, once I've got past it, really knuckling down with, with book two. We will put links to your website, your Twitter and your Instagram in the episode description on our website. So people will be able to find it. They'll be able to follow you and they'll know where to go to tell you what they thought of the book and how much they liked it. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for for doing such a thoughtful and careful reading of, of the book. I, I, it's just been so lovely to hear your thoughts and your theories i've absolutely loved it i hope that we could do it justice for something that's so personal to you thank you so much thanks for hanging out with us today and again special thanks to annie follow us on instagram at demythifying the podcast for more olympus-based and book-based content and if you're liking what we're doing please rate us and subscribe Also, check out our website at www.deathmythpod.co.uk. See you again next time and check us out wherever you get your podcasts. I've been Charlotte, she's been Lauren, and today we've been turning pages with Annie Kirby.